I want to take as a text this morning the 16th verse of this third chapter of John's Gospel. Other references will be made to other verses in this passage. Other references will be made to other scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament, but I want to take as the basis of the message this morning, the 16th verse, John chapter three. If you grew up in the church, if you attended Sunday school, if you were part of a Bible study, part of a youth group that studied the Bible or a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study, or you heard sermons preached in a church that believed the Bible and preached and taught the Word of God, then I have no doubt that you know John 3.16. John 3.16 is perhaps one of the best known verses certainly in the New Testament, if not all of Scripture. It is a verse that I feel confident about that if I were to go around the sanctuary today and say, which of you could stand and repeat this verse by heart that a number of you could do so? It is a verse that is often memorized in Sunday school or in daily vacation Bible school or in a youth group. It is a, a verse to commit to memory. What a wonderful verse to commit to memory. And it is a verse that you could say by heart. When we think of John 3.16, and if we've grown up in church, and we're used to studying the Word of God, Perhaps we could have the idea that everybody knows John 3.16. Certainly, if they don't know any other verse in Scripture, certainly they've heard John 3.16. Well, we might ask ourselves the question, <clears throat> is that the case? Back in 2009, the college football championship at the Division I level was played with the Florida Gators playing the Oklahoma Sooners. And the quarterback for the Florida Gators that year was a man by the name of Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was a Christian. And Tim Tebow wore those black patches that athletes sometimes wear under their eyes to help them with either the glare of the sun or the glare of the lights. But it was a little different with him. Under the one that was on the right eye, he had the name John written in white. And under the one on the left eye was 3 colon 16. And the reason that he did that was, as a Christian, he wanted to bear witness to his Christian faith. And certainly as a national audience, perhaps those watching from other countries as well, he wanted to bear witness of his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, did everybody know what Tim Tebow was getting at? It said that night there were something like 90 million hits on a search engine looking up 
John 3.16. Evidently, not everybody knew what John 3.16 was all about. But there it was. It wasn't a passage of Scripture, John 3.1-21. It was one verse that he used in order to convey his Christian faith. A couple of years ago, my sister passed away. And as we were there in my hometown, I uh, found out that uh, she had gone to the funeral home several years in advance and had done all the pre-planning of her funeral. And uh, she was asked a series of questions by the funeral director, and the funeral director then made a copy of all that they had agreed to as to what they would do in terms of the service and the place of the service and who would do the service and what would be included in the service in terms of music and those kinds of things. And evidently, one of the questions that was asked of her was this. What scripture do you want in that little folder that is usually handed out at funerals? Uh, those folders which perhaps have uh, a picture on the front and then on the inside there is the biographical information and the obituary and then it, it's someplace either on the inside or on the back there's usually a scripture passage. And many times uh, you, you receive those little folders and you open it up and there's a passage like Psalm 23 or Psalm 121 or or, or verses from John 14 or from 1 Corinthians 15 or some such passage that speaks hope and peace and comfort at such a time. And as I was looking over those uh, papers that uh, she had from the funeral director and her response to this, I was struck that there was no passage of scripture that she had in mind rather there was one verse that she had in mind and that verse was John 3.16 John 3.16 well in the providence of God the best laid plans of mice and men oft go astray and the plan in the uh, providence of God the person who was to do that funeral had moved out of the area, so my nephew asked if I would do the funeral service, and I said I would. Now, as a brother who had known his sister for almost 70 years, certainly I could do the eulogy. But I went that day, not only as a brother, I went that day as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, what, what text of scripture will I use to speak to our family and to her friends who have gathered for this service, what passage of scripture could be used to bring peace and hope and comfort in such a time as this? And as I thought about it, I said, I'm gonna use one verse, and the one verse that I used was John 3.16. That verse which was printed inside that little folder for her funeral. I saw a YouTube. George Beverly Shea, Cliff Barrows, and Billy Graham were on this YouTube. 
And they were all up in age at this point. And Cliff Barrows was asking Billy Graham some questions. And one of the questions he asked Billy Graham was this, what's your favorite text to preach? And without hesitation, Billy Graham answered, not with a passage of scripture, Billy Graham answered with one verse of scripture, and the one verse of scripture that he answered with was John 3, 16. As I understand it, when Dr. Graham would go into a location to hold a crusade, one of the very first messages he would preach would be a, a message preached on John 3, 16. Here's a man who traveled the world preaching. Here's a man who no doubt preached from many texts from the Old and from the New Testament. But when he was asked for one text that was his favorite text to preach, he said without hesitation, John 3, 16. What is it? What is it about that verse? One verse used by a Christian athlete to proclaim his faith. One verse for a minister at a funeral to declare for peace and hope, comfort. One verse to be preached around the world in different languages. One verse, what is it about that one single verse. And I think what it is is this, that encapsulated in that one verse is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who study this have sometimes referred to John 3.16 as the gospel in a nutshell. They have referred to it as the gospel in miniature. And that's what we have here in John chapter 3 and verse 16. Encapsulated in 24 English words in the English Standard Version is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, it's a biblical word. Gospel's a biblical word. The first four books of the New Testament we call the Gospels. But if you were to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul talks about himself as being an apostle set apart by God for the Gospel of God. And in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. If you look in the original language that the New Testament was written in, you find that this word is a compound word. It has a prefix and it has a root word. And the prefix means this, it means good. And the root word means this, news. That's what the gospel is. And biblically speaking, it is the good news of God for the salvation of sinners. And oh, what a salvation it is. A salvation that deals with our past. A salvation that deals with our present. A salvation that deals 
with our future. I think it was uh, Francis Schaeffer who talked to, uh, about those three different aspects. I'm also reminded of a story I read in, in one of the uh, commentaries by James Montgomery Boyce of an Anglican bishop who was traveling by train in a Salvation Army young worker, a lady, got on the train and she was doing some evangelistic work. She didn't work, uh, work and she didn't know who the good bishop was. And, and uh, she went up to him and said, Sir, are you saved? And the bishop answered her in Greek. And his answer was in Greek, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. That's how great our salvation is. He deals with our sin. He deals with our past. He, and in, 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 in the present, he, as the hymn writer says, he breaks the power of canceled sin so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we can serve the true and the living God and know true freedom. And there is laid up for us an inheritance which is imperishable, where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves cannot break in. It is the good news of salvation. It's God's good news. The gospel is not something that was contrived or thought up by men. The gospel is God's gospel. It comes from him, and it comes to us today. Well, that brings us to our text. What is the gospel? As we look at this verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the first thing that we might say about the gospel is this, the good news of the gospel is rooted and grounded in who God is and what he has done. Or we might put it a different way, it's not rooted and grounded in who we are and what we've done. Because the scripture tells us this, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have sinned by doing those things which God said not to do. We have sinned by not doing those things which he has said to do. We have sinned by omission and commission. We do it in thought and word and deed. Our sin so easily besets us. And the just deserts of that is judgment according to Holy Scripture. The wages of sin is, is death, it's doom, it is bad news. But there is good news, and that good news of the gospel is rooted in who God is and what he has done for our salvation. If we were to put it in a biblical phrase, we might put it like this, salvation is of the Lord. Now I'm sure you've read the book of Jonah and you know that in chapter one, Jonah was given a commission to go to the Ninevites and there he was to cry out against that great city whose sin had come up before the Lord, yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish. And Jonah wanted none of it because he didn't like the Ninevites. And this prophet of God would have just have rather have seen the Ninevites perish in their sin. And so 
He doesn't do what God calls him to do. He goes down and he gets on a boat. And yet, at the end of chapter 1, we have the sailors throwing Jonah overboard. And we read that God prepared a great fish for him. And the great fish swallowed Jonah, and he was in the belly of that great fish three days and three nights. Well, what do you think Jonah did? Well, it's no surprise that in chapter 2, Jonah prayed. And I imagine if you and I were in the belly of a fish for three, three days and three nights, that might be something that we thought of too, to pray. Jonah prayed. And when you come to the end of chapter 2, just before God has this great fish to spew him back up on the shore, to renew his call that he might go to Nineveh, just before that, Jonah says these words, salvation is of the Lord. In other words, Jonah had no hope in and of himself of getting out of the belly of that great fish. He was helpless to save himself. If he were to be saved, it would only be by God's doing, and God did it as only he could do. In the Old Testament, there is the book of Exodus. Exodus has been said to be the greatest of the deliverances of God's people in the Old Testament. All the other Deliverances of God seem to be measured against the Exodus. And how do we find the book of Exodus beginning? Well, there's a new king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he makes life miserable. And the children of Israel are put in forced labor. And they are sorely oppressed for over 400 years. And how is it that they will ever come out of that? They have no ability in and of themselves to save themselves. They have no hope except that God remembers his word that he spoke in Genesis 15. That after 400 years, he would bring them out and bring them into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did they have? They had the word of God. The God who is faithful and the God who is able and the God alone who can save his people. Now, as we think of Jonah in the belly of that great fish, as we think of Israel that was in bondage for over 400 years, perhaps we could take that as a picture of our spiritual condition. All men born of natural generation, the scripture tells us, are sinners by nature, sinners by choice, sinners by practice. And we are in the bondage of sin. And the scripture makes it plain that you and I can do nothing to save ourselves from this. But the good news is this. It's who God is and what God has done to save sinners like us. I want you to notice the context of this. That when uh, Jesus is speaking here in John chapter 3, that he is speaking to somebody who perhaps is looked upon by society as a really good man. His name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. He is a Pharisee. He's one of those who tries to keep strict adherence to the law and to keep himself from sin. He is the teacher of Israel, perhaps we might say as a seminary degree. He is learned. 
people come to hear him teach. And yet, what is it that our Lord says of Nicodemus, spiritually speaking? A man, perhaps, that would be welcome in the most churches, and perhaps made an officer, ordained, perhaps, to ministry. What is it that what Jesus says about this man? What he says is this, you're deader than a doornail, spiritually speaking. Nicodemus, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born again, and unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus needed to be born again. He didn't understand this. What he didn't understand was this, that salvation is of the Lord. And unless the Lord did a work in his heart by the Spirit and convicted him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, he was lost. Convicted him of his sin and of his utter helplessness to save himself. Convicted him of righteousness that is not a righteousness of the law, but a righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ and of the judgment that was due unto us. But as Isaiah says in 53, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded and he suffered and he died, not because of any wrong that he had done, but for our transgressions. Who are you looking to for your salvation? It's rooted and grounded in God. Look at the first two words of chapter 3, verse 16. For God. For God. Everything else follows. But here's where it begins. And to him we must look if we are ever to be saved. Not to self. Not to our own efforts. Not to our own good works, which are as filthy rags as Isaiah tells us. But we are to look to him. And to see it's, it's in this passage of scripture that uh, Jesus reveals to us what is the nature of man. Men, apart from the grace of God, love darkness rather than light and will do anything but come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed. And if that means putting on a veneer of respectability and religiosity, then there are those who would do that. Yet, to look to any other, and to begin in any other place other than to look to who God is and what he has done for our salvation, is not to know that salvation. We might put it this way, Luther was a monk and was teaching the Bible before he ever came to faith in Jesus Christ. But when he, by grace, apprehended that the just shall live by faith, then he knew, and he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What is it then that God has done? If it's who he is and what he's done, what is it that God has done for our salvation according to John chapter 3 and verse 16? It says this, for God so loved <clears throat> It's interesting in the uh, Spanish version of the Bible, 
it, it says it in this way. In, in such a way did God love. In what way did God love? And uh, if you look at the, the uh, if you look at this Gospel of John, here's the first occurrence of love, and I want you to notice something about it. It's a verb. It's a word of action. And it describes what God is doing here in relationship to the world. And it says that God loved the world. That's the object of his love, the world. Now, if you read the book of John, you read the writings of John, what you'll find out is that he uses that word world, cosmos. And he uses it in several different ways. But when it says here in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God loved the world, what it means is that God loved fallen men everywhere. That's the object of his love. Or to put it this way, the object of his love is not a world of good people. The object of his love is a world that is lost in sin. B.B. Warfield put it this way, the world is not so much a quantitative term as if for God to love the world would be a big deal for an omnipotent God, but it is a qualitative term. Or to put it in the way that Edmund Clowney puts it in his book, John 3.16 reflects not so much the big, bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. There's the wonder of it all. John 3.16 doesn't mean much if it's a morally neutral world that is being loved here, but it means everything if it's a world that is lost in sin. When you join the church, at least church here and in our denomination, the very first question that is asked of you and anyone else who joins the church is this. Do you confess yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope, except in his love and his mercy? It's not that we're pretty good sinners who need a little bit of being cleaned up. It's not as if we need to turn over a new leaf. We need a Savior. And the only Savior is that which God provides. There's none of us that are righteous. No, not one. I had a, I had a theology professor who once said, you know, it's one thing for a man to say it's perfect. It's another thing for his theology professor to say that he's perfect. Well, that was bad enough. But then he went on to add, it's one thing for a man to say he's perfect. It's another thing for his wife to say that he's perfect. Now, there may be some wives here who are willing to say some very nice things about their husband, but I doubt seriously there is one wife here that is willing to say, oh, he's just perfect. There's none of us who are righteous. No, not one. I remember the words of George Beverly Shea wrote these words, there's the wonder 
of sunset at evening, the wonder of sunrise I see, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder, the wonder, the awe that God loves me. An undeserved, unmerited love we got what we would deserve, it would be judgment, just judgment. Now let me ask you a question. When's the last time you thought about the wonder that God loved you? In light of what the scripture says about each one of us, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory, that we have missed the mark. There's the wonder. Oh, that there would be that, that wonder, that meditating upon the love of God, and that while we were yet helpless, as Paul says in Romans 5, while we were yet ungodly, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, God commended his love towards us. Secondly, God gave. God so loved that he gave. Love gives. And God gave here. What did he give? His only son. You, of course, remember the story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is told to take his son, his only son, his only son that he loved, and to take him up to the mountain where God would show him. And there he was to offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham and Isaac go on their way. And Isaac says, well, we've got the, we've got the wood, we've got the fire. Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says in faith, God himself will provide the sacrifice. He lays him upon the altar. The knife is ready to come down. But the hand just stayed from a voice in heaven saying, withhold your hand. And there in the thicket there was one who would die on the altar in the place of Isaac. Now fast forward to the New Testament. Fast forward to the ministry of John the Baptist standing on the banks of the river and he sees Jesus walking by and he says to his disciples, there he is, there he is, there's the lamb. There's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. There's the spotless lamb. There's the lamb who was tempted like you and I have been tempted, yet he was without sin. There's the lamb that, that was without sin, but God would make to be sin in order that we might be the righteousness of God in him. There he is. There's the one that God has provided. And he alone can save you from your sins. The love of God is a love that for our salvation spared nothing but delivered up his only son. The eternal son of God became man. And he was full of grace and truth and he dwelt among us. And he is that lamb 
who, though tempted like as we, was without sin and who would die and pay in full the penalty of his people's sin. In the Gospel of John, one of the words of the cross is this, it is finished. Jesus cried that out. It wasn't a cry of agony. It was a cry of victory, a cry of accomplishment that all that he had been sent to do, he had done, and he had paid in full. That's, it's a commercial term. It, it, it means paid in full. He had paid in full the penalty of our sin. Why? Because God so loved the world. I ask the question again, how often do you think of the love of God? How often do you think about it in terms of your own life and if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ of that knowing him and loving him who first loved you. All of this comes at the initiative of God. For God. God so loved the world. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent forth his son to die a death that would pay in full the penalty of that sin and turn away his righteous anger from us. 1 John 4.10 It's all of his initiative. The story of sinners being saved biblically from Genesis 3.15 where he promises to send one who is the seed of a woman whose heel would be bruised but who would crush the head of the enemy from beginning to end, it is the initiative of God. It is God seeking man. It is not man seeking God. And if we're here today and we know of that salvation, it is because he took the initiative. He did that which only he could do in the sending of his son to seek and to save us. Thirdly, God promises whoever believes in him, who trusts in him alone for salvation, that person will never perish, but have everlasting life. You know, we stand at the grave of a believer and we do those words of committal and we say, we commit their body to the ground, we commit their soul to God. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, with the shore and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, waiting that great day. There is the hope that we have, and it comes only through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved, said the Philippian jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Why is that? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love. God's love in the midst of the pandemic. If I say the word pandemic, I think probably most of us will go back in our minds to the month of March and about the midterm of March and we'll think that that is the pandemic. It's not the pandemic. It is a pandemic. 
But the Bible speaks of the pandemic. Pan means all. Demic means people. All people. And that pandemic goes all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. And if you want to know how you've tested out and how I've tested out, the scripture tells us that when God administers his test, we've all tested positive. And we cannot do something to cure ourselves, to save ourselves. But the good news is this, God has done something in the sending of his son out of his great love that we might know him and have eternal life. Before we went to the mission field, we were sent to a language school to try and learn Spanish. It was a school where uh, missionary candidates would come and they would learn Spanish because they were going to Spanish-speaking countries, both in uh, Central and South America and Mexico, and uh, they were there to learn Spanish. But it was also a school that was a Bible school, and it was a Bible school for Spanish-speaking people who came from the United States or came from Mexico or came from Central uh, or South America. And students came from all over to study and to receive a Bible education. One of the fellows there was a fellow from Philadelphia, and uh, he had been involved in gangs there in Philadelphia, gang life. And there was a young girl there who was trying to witness to him and bear witness to the Christian faith. And he was asking her questions, and she just didn't have all the answers to his questions. In fact, she didn't have any answers to his questions. And finally she said this, I don't know. I don't know. The only thing I know is this. I know John 3.16. That's a start. Because encapsulated in these 24 words is the message of life. And if we know that life, and we know John 3.16, can we not also bear witness to that life that comes through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation? He calls us to himself, and he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. May we go. May we go this day. May we use this season of a pandemic to tell others of God's great love in the pandemic and of the life found only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us while we're yet helpless ungodly sinners even your enemies if we think deeply if we think thoughtfully if we carefully consider what your word reveals to us as to who we are apart from your grace and all that we have in your grace we pray our father that there might be 
that sense of wonder and love and praise and that it might spill over in our lives in witness of your great love. For those who know you not, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.